live budget special from Virtue Motors BMW showroom at Preston Farm in Stockton. Today we're going to hear from some special guests, one of the UK's most effective mayors, Ben Houchen, Mayor for Tees Valley. Jill Hunter, managing partner of Insider Media's corporate law firm of the year, Square One Law. And our host, Robert Forrester, CEO of Gateshead-based Virtue Motors PLC. The budget's headlines have included forecasts of 4% inflation, forecasts of 7% growth, forecasts of reduced public sector borrowing, and a growth in public spending, with money targeted at levelling up, infrastructure and transport, housing, schools, research and development, and business rates cuts for hospitality. And also, people on universal credit have been given the chance to keep more than £1,000 of what they earn in employment with changes to the benefit rules. So, our guests are going to discuss the budget, and we've also got a live audience. Welcome to everyone, and welcome to our guests. Can we start with Ben Houchen, Tees Valley Mayor? First of all, if you combine this budget with the budget that was in earlier uh, March this year, this has been a Teesside year from the government. Yeah, it has. Um, I mean, we were just talking before, Graham, that just, to, just this week we've secured an extra £437 million, £310 million for large-scale transport in infrastructure, roads, rail, buses, introduction of things like zero emissions buses, hydrogen buses, electric buses, etc., through to the £107 million from the UK Infrastructure Bank, which was the first investment the UK Infrastructure Bank have done since their creation last March, uh, or sorry, this March, just gone, um, and then money into, into our high streets like Yarm and Eaglescliff and others as well. And then on top of that, something that wasn't in the, in the Chancellor's speech, but was in the Red Book for the budget, was the confirmation that Teesside is going to be the first free port in the country. It's been confirmed now. So even though it was announced last March, there's a huge amount of work to get it operational, and it will become operational in November, which means we'll be the first because we were confirmed with two others. So there'll only be three in phase one. Uh, the Humber and um, uh, the Thames will also be the other two, but operationally they're a couple of months away from being ready. So there is a, our official launch tomorrow that I know you're coming to, Graham, which will be fantastic. So all of those things coming together, and then on top of that, things like the Treasury, etc. There is just a moment in time happening in Teesside at the minute that we need to make sure that we continue to run at. Because let's be honest, over the next few months, I'm sure the spotlight will go elsewhere. Somebody else will be flavour of the month. And we've got to make sure we grab it while we can so that we reach that critical mass, which we're not quite there on yet, that it means that it all just becomes a bit self-fulfilling and we can just get that momentum going long into the future. Okay. Do you feel like you're in a bit of a petri dish, a bit of an experiment from the government in, in this levelling up process? Or do you feel you're driving what the government's doing? Are they, are they listening to you and Teesside? No, I think we are. We're setting the agenda. And I think it's fair to say that the government is committed to levelling up. It's now all we hear about from the government, which is a good thing. But in reality, and I think it's fair to say the government would recognise this, that the only place at the minute that can really honestly demonstrate what levelling up actually means is Teesside. And, you know, Michael Gove, who's the new levelling up minister, said, if you want to know what levelling up actually is, come to Teesside. And you look at things like the Treasury, the Freeport, the infrastructure investment, the large-scale investment that the private sector are making. I mean, the stuff that Robert's doing, employing more than 700 people in Teesside, the acquisition of this facility, it's a great relationship between what we can do with infrastructure and the private sector putting their money where their mouth is. We're just in a very special time in Teesside and we just need to make sure it lasts as long as possible. All right, that's a good segue to Robert, our host. Uh, we're in your facility here, BMW Preston Farm in Stockton, and you've completely modernised it during the pandemic. I was in here just before the, uh, the pandemic and it didn't look like this. Tell us about 
the economic sentiment that you're operating within in your sector and your investments? Yeah, I mean, I think the UK economy is clearly buoyant on the back of people who've got money coming out of the pandemic. But of all the regions I see, Teesside is the most dynamic. I actually worry about Tyne and Weir. I actually live on Tyne and Weir and it looks a laggard in terms of development at the moment, really. Uh, but Teesside, I think, is very exciting. We've got businesses in Dalton and Hartlepool and Stockton. Uh, and we'll be investing more businesses in this region because it's going to be very prosperous. Okay. Now, what about the general sentiment? Um, obviously, you like Teesside, and I, I think that's great, and uh, there's lots of people watching this from other parts of the country, and you operate nationwide. Yes. It's a big firm. Well, what is it, three billion a year turnover, 6,000 staff? What's your general sentiment about the way the world is? Well, I think we're in a little bit of a bubble, actually, where everything is short of supply, where wages are going up, where concrete's going up, everything's going up, and that will level off at some point. And we're going to have the realisation we're in a high-tax potentially low growth economy and that's going to lead to a lot of choices both for companies and for government uh, because these highly spending years have to be paid back at some point clearly 25% corporation tax rate is looming and that's going to be a major change from 19 and in terms of employment cost tax very important for the business uh, all your shareholders will want to know if they if they're not having uh, money to give dividends from but the employment costs are also significant the minimum wage i know not everyone in this building gets paid the minimum wage but will it affect you oh no it's a substantial cost of minimum wage uh, for example uh, we've got uh, you know valeters and drivers who are on minimum wage and there's a ripple effect through isn't there it, uh, not everybody wants to wake up in the morning with middle age. There'll be pressure in other, you know, to get more at higher levels, I think. And we are in now a high inflation environment for Labour. Uh, mm. We last week announced in excess of £9 million of pay rises, uh, double-digit pay rises for technicians uh, in the UK because we can't recruit them. And there's skill shortage. And that's great, actually. It's levelling up in action in many ways, isn't it? It's, it's the, the workers uh, mm. actually getting more money. Uh, but there will be a payback time and we will see it in inflation and you half wonder whether they want to have inflation to inflate away the debt. Do you think that that's a very important point, the debt and the inflating away the debt? Of course, if it doesn't work, the cost of the interest rates, what was it, 23 billion is the cost of a 1% rise in interest rate on the public sector. So they're not going to want it too much out of control, are they? Well, can they, they, being the can government? they control inflation? <laughs> I mean, we've been there before, maybe when I was a little lad. Uh, but it, once you let the genie out of the bottle, inflation is very, very difficult to get back under control and quite costly in terms of economic downturns. So I think we've got some rather more interesting times to come. We'll come back to you. Jill Hunter, Square One Law, you do a lot of deals. You, do, you talk to a lot of businesses that are conducting transactions. What are the sentiments of the people that you've been talking to today? And tell us about the general sentiment driving their transactions at the moment. Um, it's been a real mix. So um, uh, uh, we've got a lot of clients who are very active on the transactional side at the moment. Um, some are opportunistic and are seeing that there are some good deals to be, to be got at the moment. Uh, others, it's part of a broader strategic plan. We've got clients operating in, um, in sectors that are very, um, have a lot of uh, initiative behind them at the moment, things like energy, um, electrification, um, renewables, uh, those sorts of sectors where things are very active. There's a lot of um, public money available to support them. There are a lot of incentives to come particularly into this region, so people are taking advantage of that. Um, I think generally sentiment is, is pretty good. Um, there was some 
some caution, I think, today, because um, there are problems in, in industries. We do a lot in automotive as well, the big problem with microchips um, holding up production. Um, and that has a knock-on effect down through supply, supply chain as well. And when you couple that with things like the having to deal with the increases in minimum wage, there is some concern. But I think there was also um, some welcome um, announcements today, particularly for leisure and hospitality. We have a lot of clients in, in that sector and they were you know, pleased to see that the reliefs were, were, were going to be extended and also that business relief um, is, is starting to be looked, business rates are starting to be looked at individually and are going to be reviewed on a more regular basis. Uh, those sorts of announcements are very welcome. Okay. I, I was talking to a, a big business in this area, I can't name them, but they had a large number of staff on minimum wage and on Monday night phoned me to say, Graham, our costs have gone up three million pounds. And then this afternoon, phoned me to say, Graham, the 50% rates cut, because it's in leisure and hospitality, uh, is saving me three million pounds. <laughs> it was just a sort of give with one hand, take with the other moment, except that the giving is only for a year. Yeah, and, and also, uh, as Robert's pointed out, we've got um, a, a hike in corporation tax mm -hmm. next year that, that people need to factor in as well. There were some other welcome things, things around R&D um, tax credits, and now you can extend the, the eligible expenditure to cloud and data storage, which is, which, is, which is good news for a lot of businesses, particularly those who are, who are innovating, because the R&D tax credit system has been something that's been incredibly beneficial and has stimulated innovation in business. And as a, as a tech lawyer myself, I like to see that, that happening on a regular basis. And he, he was talking about R&D uh, being targeted at over 1% of GDP of the economy. Mm. And the stimulation of R&D was a serious component of Rishi's objectives. Will it work, do you think? There's tax incentives for it? Is it, is it, is it actually going to drive people to invest? I think, it, I think it does. That's certainly what, what we've seen is that that um, ability to recover those costs has made it more, more attractive to do more speculative R&D rather than things that you know are going to produce um, solid results. Um, I think that co coupled with things like the patent box system where you can also claim reliefs for when you patent items as well, that's been helpful. But then I think also on a broader scale, you know, what we need is investment into, into skills, into our universities and our hubs of, of R&D so that we become a, a nation that leads on that front. Okay. Ben, there was one other thing that I wanted to ask you about that he mentioned in the budget, which is the air passenger duty for mm. regional airports or domestic flights. It's a no-brainer to welcome that. How will it affect the airport uh, here at Teesside? Oh, it would be great. I mean, our domestic connectivity has grown exponentially in, in just the last 12 months. Obviously, flights to places like Bristol and Belfast and London, Heathrow, uh, Southampton, you know, the, the list goes on and on, and obviously with the Aberdeen link for oil and gas, which has been there for a long, long time. So a 50% reduction in APD ultimately just means that domestic flights are more sustainable, it's going to lower the yield rate that a lot of the airlines need to be able to reach to be able to make them sustainable so they can put on the flights. So ultimately it will mean cheaper domestic flights for local people. And when we're trying to make sure that, and you know, we always talk about this with the airport, it's great having the flights to Spain, it's great having the ability to go and hold there from your local airport, but actually the businesses in Teesside who need to connect to the rest of the UK for their supply chain or new customers and build up new opportunities is actually the beating heart of why we need the airport. It's just connectivity, whether that's international or domestic. So it basically, ultimately, reduces the cost largely to business who are the main domestic travellers that we see. 
which means it's easy to be able to better connect with the rest of the UK, which is fantastic. Now, obviously that kicks in in 2023, so there's a bit of delay before that kicks in. It's a bit like the business rates reduction for hospitality. There, there seems to be a bit of a hiatus by the time some of these things kick in, but it will only drive more confidence in those sectors. And there's also some of the extension for things like AGOS as well, which is some of the re reliefs for regional airports for an additional six months. So the airport will directly benefit to the tune of many thousands of pounds actually by having that extension, which as we come out of COVID, yes, we're seeing, you know, even compared to pre-COVID, passenger numbers at Teesside Airport are up by more than 30%. You know, we're still really at the back end of COVID when it comes to aviation travel, because we all know lots of people probably in this room kind of putting off your holiday to at least the end of the year, if not into next year, because you can't be bothered with the paperwork and the hassle and second waves and all of the noise that you hear on the mainstream media. So we're pretty confident in the direction of travel. This is just going to help us. And the likes of Logan Air and Easton are the ones that actually benefit from the reduction in APD. But it just drives more traffic through the airport. Can I ask you, in your, with your hat as a politician rather than the mayor, because as a mayor you're almost a businessman, really, because you're having meetings like this all the time, but with a political hat on, what is the direction of the government? Is this a centrist Blairite government or is it a, uh, a reactionary Brexit government? Uh, where is it? Let, is it a tax cutting government or is it a spending government, over borrowing government? It feels like we're dealing with a new set of politics where it's difficult to put, put, a, put a label on it and predict what's going to happen. It is, and it's, you know, it's a, a little bit like the microcosm that is Teesside that you know, people try and label, well, you know, we've seen it recently, haven't we? What type of Tory has been hounching? And it's like, well, you know, I nationalise an airport, but we're also responsible for introducing free ports into the UK. I mean, we, we do practical politics, and I think that's reflected in, in the Prime Minister because he was the Mayor of London, so he brings a lot of that practical politics to national politics. So you see a Prime Minister that is very committed and is a big believer in infrastructure spend. It's why he's recommitted to things like HS2. It's why you see huge amounts of money that is coming into places, not just Teesside, but across the country, in large infrastructure investment. Um, the issue that the government's going to have, and, and Robert's hit the nail on the head, is ultimately the OBR have forecasted inflation to reach 4% next year, October next year. There is an argument that there could be some upward pressure on that rather than that being an, an ultimate peak, although talking about it just being 4% as a peak, it could go even higher. What's the impact then on the Bank of England about having to, you know, they're forced to inter increase interest rates to try and get it back down to the target that Rishi actually reaffirmed today of that 2% target. So I think what you will see over the next couple of years, it'll be interesting to see which way it goes, but Boris is clearly on a track of more investment to unleash the potential across the country. There's a realisation now in national politics that there are areas like Teesside that have been left behind and therefore there is a political imperative to level those areas up. The question is, does some of the economic forecasts catch up with him? And is his belief that this infrastructure will kickstart a revolution that will increase R&D will increase job creation investment in the UK that will allow them to pay for everything or will things like inflation and interest rates catch up with him where in a couple of years time we, may, we might see some downward pressure on public spend. You know, to the extent, the 25% corporation tax rate, I mean a cynic in me would say that they, they pushed it out far enough that it allows for a, a, a Chancellor in a year or two's time to say we've managed the public finances to the extent that we don't have to put it up. I mean, that's me just being overly cynical as a politician. Yeah. Now, it may be that it doesn't work out like that, but you can see markers that they want things to perform slightly ahead of schedule that allows them to 
you know, set a pessimistic medium term that they can hopefully outperform. He certainly had more headroom than people were expecting just two the weeks ago. The day-to-day spending, this is the thing, so over the last couple of weeks, you know, we were hearing noises that the day-to-day spending in government is much more headroom than people expected. And I think what you've seen today is that in spades, where they're committing to that. But they are taking a bet on the economy and the direction of travel. I mean, people in this room, as Robert said about shortages as well, you know, we're seeing it with large development schemes that we're involved with. You know, construction costs over the next three months could easily increase by 20% just over the next three months. We're already seeing big development schemes, massive upward pressures. But again, not just because of COVID, not just because of international supply chains, but things like HS2. I mean, the upward pressure on wages because we can't get um, HGV drivers, we can't get wagon drivers, we can't get you know digger drivers, we can't get people working in construction because you know we we pay significantly above. Uh, the minimum wage and all of the contractors do for example on the Teeswork site they're nowhere near they get, some of the guys on there are getting paid 30 37 pounds an hour for some of the stuff they do which is significantly where it was higher than where it was 12 months ago and we get them to work six days a week 12 hour shift so good money good work six days a week we have a problem now because HS2 is saying well you can do five days a week and work eight till three and earn the same amount working eight till three than you would if you were doing the same shift with us. So that then sucks up a lot of that talent. It, you know, there's this kind of race to the top of HS2 is causing also an inflationary increase in, in wages in the construction sector as well, which is having an impact on other projects. It, it's, a re- it's not complicated, but it's a really multifaceted thing. So to say, well, this is the cause of it, it might be a contributing factor. Actually, there's a whole uh, array of issues that are creating shortages, increasing in pressure. And then you start to think, well, given the amount of infrastructure spend the government want to do, surely that's only only going to add to the potential impact on inflation and how does that get managed? And Robert, that's pretty straightforward analysis, not really a political one, but it started politically. And Rishi ended his speech politically by saying he really didn't want to be the chancellor to whom every problem was laid at the door. And we had to end this period of emergency that felt like saying, make me virtuous, but not yet. I just worry about their ability to manage anything. They spent £37 billion on test and trace, and it sank without trace, to be honest. Um, so it's great having public expenditure in investment if it gets delivered on time, on budget, and it adds to the capacity of the country. But the jury's out on their ability to manage it for me. Do they get any points for things like having the furlough programme, which oh, worked? No. I mean, come on. I mean, I mean Rishi does have a lot of credibility, doesn't he? If you're a British businessman, the furlough programme saved umpteen companies. And, and yes, I think he has a lot of credibility for that. But did he have a choice, actually? Because mm. he was just, he was actually signing the death warrant the British economy and the British population if he didn't do it. Um, so, yeah, I give him some credit for that, and it was exceedingly helpful. Is there anything he didn't do that you would have wanted him to? I think he's got a very political Prime Minister and therefore his ability to manage effectively the finance of the country is limited. So there isn't. (laughs) That's a very political answer from business. I've got got business answers from the politician and a political answer from the businessman. You're not wrong. But it's it's an an interesting point because historically there have always been these tensions between number 10 and number 11. You know, Tony Blair was no different. He wanted to spend much more than Gordon Brown would let him. You know, he was infamous, wasn't he, that, you know, Tony Blair didn't know what was going to be said in the budget until Gordon Brown stood up and said it. So, you know, I think it's natural that those things happen, but I think it's true to say that those tensions still exist today. Okay, okay. Jill, there's one other thing that I'm going to ask everyone a little bit about, which is um, the sort of special tax on developers. Yeah. Can you, can you, what did you pick up on this? 
Um, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise one, that one, and um, a number of our property development clients have raised their eyebrows. Um, so there's a, as I understand it from the information I've seen, there's going to be a tax on um, property developers of profits over 25 million at 4%, where uh, uh, effectively to pay for cladding. So it's a, a cladding tax in effect. Um, and some of those that will be affected will have had absolutely nothing to do with either causing the problem or continuing to build houses that have any sort of cladding yeah. in them. So there is, there's, there is some con consternation around that. Robert, there's lots of questions about that, including what may, is a property developer. You sell cars, but you develop property as well. What, what was your view on this? There for the grace of God, actually, really. I mean, I think it's an absolute outrage. I mean, it was an absolute failure of the state in regulation, and then to bash the public, the private sector, who have probably 90% of them, nothing to do with whatsoever, is absolute abuse. Okay. Have you got any comments on this, or do you want to stay <laughs> quiet on it? Thankfully, it's completely outside. outside <laughs> can, I, can I conclude by just asking about one other area of policy, which is where Rishi ended, which is this ability for people on universal uh, credit to earn more money uh, before they are taxed. Now, um, if you're not in the universal credit system, it's sometimes difficult to understand what this means, but you meet your voters and people who are in the community all the time, and Teesside has a lot of people on universal credit. Can you describe the impact on the general economy of that policy? Well, the, the principle is sound in that you know, there, is a, there is a more graduated process where people can still earn while getting back into work. And you know, many years ago now, going back 15, 20 years, there was a cliff edge and then nobody wanted to work over 16 hours a week because it was just not profitable to go into work when you could get the benefits being able to stay at home. That had a stymie on opportunity, it had an issue on generational unemployment, it caused huge problems in places like the North East. So actually Ian Duncan Smith, who's been a real champion of this for a long, long time on social justice grounds, the interesting thing about today is he all, when he set up Universal Credit, when he was the champion for this under Osborne and Cameron, it was quite a political decision for them to set the, the tapering threshold where it was at 60-odd percent, uh, so 63 percent. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith originally wanted it to be 55 percent, which has now been announced today, which basically means, you know, once you're back into work, for every pound you earn, now, instead of it being 63 pence that gets deducted from your universal credit, it's only 55 pence. And I think that balance of why 55 anyway, why 63, is the argument has got to be that the principle has to be that you are better off in work than not. Mm. Um, and, but there was always this argument that 63 was too high and it was too harsh a taper that, again, even though people were able to earn more in work than that cliff edge of being out of work that was the system before, the it wasn't quite a cliff edge, but it was a very steep drop. Mm. And this 8% means that it should be more incentivising for people to be able to take on more work. Robert, with 6,000 staff, there will inevitably be quite a few people who claim universal credit, because you claim it when you're in work. You yeah. needn't necessarily yeah. be on the poverty line to actually be a claimant. It will, I presume, uh, incentivise people back into the workplace and to take longer hours. Yeah, I mean, the UK economy's got 1.2 million vacancies, 200,000 more people in employment, and a million more on universal credit than pre-pandemic. Uh, and we need more people in the workplace, and I think the government is absolutely right to incentivise work. And work is good not only because we need labour, but work's good because it provides discipline, you get out of bed in the morning, build self-esteem, and it, it reduces this intergenerational lack of work. So it's absolutely the right thing to do. Jill, I'm going to give you the last word. What, what would you say is the, your, your thoughts about what you've heard today from the budget and our colleagues on the panel? Um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of good things, a lot of positive things. I think there are some genuine concerns that businesses are, are voicing. 
um, that the government will need to look at. But I think, as with all budgets, um, you know, until you get into the detail and we see how it actually is going to play out in practice, um, reserve judgment a little bit. Well, thank you for joining us on Business Unmuted Live. Thanks to our guests today and our audience here at Virtue BMW in Stockton. Thank you. Join us again.